This Washington Post Live podcast is presented in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and equity and economic opportunity. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this segment, President and CEO of Heifer International, Pierre Ferrari, joined the Washington Post to discuss how we can create more resilient food systems. Let's listen. Hello again. I'm Karen Tumulty, a columnist here at the Washington Post. And for our second interview this afternoon, we are being joined by Pierre Ferrari, who spent many years uh, in the corporate world at Coca-Cola, Ben and Jerry's, um, and is now the 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 head of Heifer International, which um, is a, a really creative uh, organization that that really uh, goes directly to small farmers and all around the world. And so uh, the first thing I would like to ask you is, is the same question. I mean, what have you learned about the vulnerability of our global food supply system in this crisis? So I can speak. Um, hi, Karen. First of all, say hello. Um, the Where we work, which is mostly in very poor countries uh, and where farmers don't really have the resources like some of them here do, uh, we have found that the breakdown in the system due to COVID was in mostly in transportation and delivery to the marketplaces, right? The, the markets, the, uh, the aggregation points, distribution, et cetera. And so we have a lot of surprising examples. And, and the last question you asked the uh, Ethereum and Ricardo was, what's the, what's the hope? Well, we found a tremendous amount of innovation and entrepreneurism. They said, okay, if people aren't gonna come pick up like they usually do the food that we produce, we're gonna go to the consumers directly. And in, in, in India, in Nepal, in, uh, in, in, in Ecuador, the, the farmers have organized themselves to say, okay, how do we, how do we uh, gather and aggregate the work that we do, the produce that we produce, and take it to market? And they have done an incredible job at doing that. So the system broke down and it gave an opportunity, which is a very entrepreneurial kind of venture capital situation to say, okay, we need to do that. The interesting thing was that capital to actually get that done, you need trucks, you need a warehouse, you need, you know, you need a whole bunch of infrastructure to actually deliver directly to consumers. Well, they got it. They found it. They were able to do it because it was a very localized system. They knew the bankers, you know, they're probably related in some way, if you think about the, uh, you know, about the communities in which they operate. So I, we were left, we are left and we're working right now with providing uh, participatory capital to make sure that this is enduring, that it's sustainable, that the actual infrastructure that's required to create the kind of flexibility that Etheran was talking about is actually permanent. Because that permanence then will allow the farmers to be freed from the sort of uh, uh, oligop oligopolistic uh, Percep uh, perception and structures that Ricardo was talking about, which is absolutely true. So I'm I'm actually very optimistic in the countries where we work. There are some other there are some other uh, forces that 
make it very difficult. For example, in India, uh, large numbers, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, have been displaced from their jobs in the big cities, Mumbai, Chennai, et cetera, New Delhi, and are moving back to their villages in states like Bihar. And in most of these states, the food security is not high. And suddenly you're bringing in millions of people back into a state where there's not enough food for the existing population. And suddenly you've got several hundred thousand people coming back with no money and, and very poor land uh, access. So there is a substantial uh, breakdown and not in the food supply so much, but just in the fact that the demand for food is just shifted over to a place that's just not ready for the food system to, to accommodate, but they will. There's, there's something extraordinarily powerful about demand generating supply, but it does take time. And in the meantime, lots of people are going to be hungry if not starved. Well, you talk about the, the, the creativity and the flexibility of these small individual farmers in some of the most distressed places of the world. How much of a capital investment, what's the scale we're talking about to really make a difference in the life of, say, a farmer in Bangladesh? How, how much yeah. money and resources are we really talking about? Yeah, I, I, we've got to give you a specific example from Nepal rather than Bangladesh. Um, so we, we've organized a large number of farmers and they're organized around co-ops. We have a community of about 2,000 goat farmers who uh, were actually quite successful in growing goats, farming goats, and then selling them to market through the system that existed. When COVID arrived, suddenly the, 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 the channel through which they were distributing their goats dried up. People didn't turn up, they were sick, they were, there was a lockdown, et cetera. So what they needed, were trucks. They needed some trucks to take their goats to market in Kathmandu and other major cities. The investment that was made for these 2,000 farmers, we provided $30,000. They provided $30,000. The community itself was able to raise $30,000. And the, the local banks also stepped up with a loan of $30,000. So with almost $100,000, these farmers were able to equip themselves to distribute the product uh, very rapidly and very effectively. And these communities, actually in this time where prices did go up a little bit, are prospering because they managed to take advantage of the situation. So you're talking about 2,000 farmers, about $100,000 to build uh, an infrastructure and, and, a, and a distribution system that allowed them to reconnect with the market. Uh, that's kind of the order of magnitude. So if you're if you're if you're thinking about you know 100 million farmers or 200 million farmers times uh, maybe something like five thousand dollars farmers, you're talking billions of money that would actually help to build an infrastructure that provides the flexibility that Earthrun was talking about. You know that they have instead of being dependent on large organization or transportation organization or, or even seed producers. Uh, you know, and Ethan is right, there's a large number of, of seed producers all over the world. The issue for farmers is the quality of the seed. There are a lot of different quality from absolutely useless to being absolutely, uh, absolutely superb quality seeds that allow the farmers to be productive. And the seed system, the, the, you know, we've talked a lot about distributing food to the consumers, 
but the whole where where one of the breakdowns in the food system was food for the animals, seeds for the planting, um, medicine for the animals. A whole these system just stopped. Meanwhile, your chickens might get sick, and if they get sick, they die, and suddenly all those assets evaporate. So we we worked very hard to make sure that the health uh, supply system was not interrupted. Um, and so we, we considered them to be essential workers and we were able to actually help a great deal um, for a variety of reasons, which I can explain if you'd like. Well, well, one thing is, you know, Heifer International has the word international in the name, but you also do work in the United States as Absolutely. well. Could, could you talk a little bit about that and sort of the challenges that, that you have seen among U.S. farmers, and again, we we tend to right. think of big, gigantic corporate agriculture, but um, again, that yeah, so yes, we, our own yeah. producers are under a lot of stress. We are we are building essentially a boutique, if you like, a boutique system to deliver much higher quality livestock, uh, and that's beef, pork, chicken lamb, et cetera. And it's all grass-fed. It's, it's, uh, it's a product that, as, as Ethrin mentioned, a lot of these products are sold to people who can afford them. They're expensive products, very nourishing, very high quality, high nutrition, et cetera. But nonetheless, it is not the cheap steak you can buy at Costco. So what we've built is a very resilient um, system that has the farmers all aggregated, mostly in Arkansas, a little bit in Missouri and Mississippi, and then link directly to a processing system that is also owned by this co-op, this system, uh, which is exceptionally flexible and um, unlike the large mass meat processes as its workers as a highest priority in terms of how they operate. So we have a cooperative system that has produces the farmers, the individual smallholder farmers as an outlet or they have outlets for their meat, their, their, whatever the, the cattle, pork, chickens. They send it to a system, a processing system that's also highly labor intent, labor oriented. And then we sell it to a e-commerce operation called Grassroots Co-op, which is also partly owned by the rest of us. So that this is whole continuum unitary system to like, and we sell that uh, by retail and e-commerce. Uh, so we, what happened during the COVID situation, uh, we were doing quite well, sales were going along quite well before that, and suddenly COVID hit and nobody could get meat in, at the retail. Now they can, but they couldn't then. And sales just skyrocketed. Uh, and we had the inventory, so that we were able to meet demand. And today, the, the grassroots co-op or the whole system is probably selling about twice as much as it was before. So it's it's a boutique system. I mean, this is not competing with uh, with Walmart or Costco or Safeway or Kroger or any of these massive retailers. But we found that consumers, and this is the interesting part of it, will consumers hold on to the experience they've had at sampling and enjoying high, higher, much higher quality products? than what is found in the commercial system. So, and I just go back to the, the beer industry at some point. I, I don't know if you remember in the 90s, 
um, the small local breweries began to have a huge impact on the monopolistic control by Anheuser-Busch, Coors, and Miller. And I'm wondering whether the same thing is actually going to happen in the supply of higher quality product. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I've had, I've had a Coors Light in 20 years. I mean, I, you know, I've, I, drink, I drink local brews, right? I mean, and a lot of people do. It has changed that industry. It absolutely changed the brewing industry. While we have just a, another few minutes, I would like to bring a question from our audience, Anne Whiteside sure. in California, who wants to, to know how do we make these local food economies more resilient when it in terms of climate change and our, our yeah. longer term environmental challenges? Right. So we practice what is called, you know, climate smart agriculture. Uh, Ricardo talked about the fact that you could you can raise beef in a way that's actually very detrimental to the climate in terms of deforestation, et cetera. We don't do any of that. There is a, there is a mechanism or there is an approach to, for example, livestock raising, mostly beef, called holistic management. What happens is that you rotate the, rota the, 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 the grazing of the animals in such a way that you actually improve the quality of the soil and sequester an enormous amount of carbon. Uh, there is a man out there, which actually is a great TED talk by a guy called Alan Savory, which I, I would recommend your, your viewers to watch. It's 20 minutes of incredibly entertaining uh, perspectives on how livestock, in his from his point of view, can actually be a major tool in carbon sequestration and therefore climate uh, mitigation. So we do that. We do that all over the world. Uh, it's primarily based on managing the land in a, in a way that's smart. And of course, using the manure and the waste from the animals in a way that enhances soil quality, uh, soil fertility, et cetera. So that, that is the fundamental approach we take to ensure that agriculture, the way we do it, is actually climate smart and uh, sensitive, and actually uh, climate improving. Well, I'd also like to, to bring up a topic I, I brought in, up in our earlier segment, which is, is the political component uh. of these problems. Heifer International works in a lot of parts of the world that have had a long and difficult history of civil strife. How important is strengthening civil society to building these these sorts of resilient systems that you are talking yeah. about? So it's extremely important. And the way we try to approach that, and I think we've been quite successful, is to work with local communities, okay? So we've got to create a sense of uh, community and participation and inclusion across the whole villages where we work. Then, and then form, and then form collective operations generally they're co-ops cooperatives just the way they are in in this country and once you've got these cooperatives successfully connecting to markets and generating positive cash flow for the communities now that develops economic and political power they can then go to local regional provincial national governments and begin to demand change such as for example can you build a road can we have electricity can we have uh, municipal water systems? All sorts of fundamental requirements to build a society that is stable and flexible and resilient. But until 
these communities, especially the poorer communities, can actually show that they have economic power, right? Economic advantages, that they are generating income for themselves and capital for themselves, they will not have power. And our work, our work is very much oriented towards developing these, these political capacities on the part of co-ops all over the world. And it's, it can be very successful because it's a sort of a, a self-feeding system. It's a, it's a virtuous cycle because once you begin to have success in the marketplace, you have resources with which you can make more investments, which then generates more income and capital and savings, which then allows you to, to, get, to get the attention of the political infrastructure. And uh, we've got lots of examples where that, that happens. Um, but it all starts with the farmers being organized, self-motivated, self-reliant, accountable to themselves, and organizing themselves to sell higher quality goods at a profit. Well, Mr. Ferrari, thank you so much for joining us to today. And in, in so many ways, big and small, you really are out there literally changing the world. Um, and tomorrow, please join Washington Post Live again at 11 a.m. for a special program on America's health future featuring former Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Tom Frieden and 23andMe founder, and Wojcicki, and at 3 p.m. Eastern, we'll examine the outsized impact of COVID on higher education with Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell and Montgomery College President Darion Pollard. And as always, you can head over to WashingtonPostLive.com to register for these and other upcoming events. Thank you again to our guest, and thank you to our audience so much for joining us today. Thank you, Karen. Thank you very much, Karen. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.